Yes, Lord, great are you, Lord, and greatly you are to be praised. Father, thank you for the opportunity to praise you today, to praise you in song, to praise you as we open up our Bibles and we learn more about you. Uh, Father, I pray that, that this message would not just seep into our heads, Lord, but that our minds would inform our hearts, which would inform our, our actions. Uh, so, Lord, may you be glorified in this time together. May you be honored, Lord, because you are worthy of it. So, Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, this wasn't in my notes, but it just struck me. Uh, normally, I don't sit during worship over there, so I don't get to see the kids worshiping. And this is the class I typically teach. They were belting it out during worship. It was, it was awesome, yeah. So, uh, totally not in my notes. All right. Um, today, we're going to talk about a somewhat complicated topic. The topic is joy in a troubled culture. And if you've been around the church for any period of time, you've probably heard this distinction between joy and happiness, right? And if not, here's what it is, just quite simply. Happiness is tethered to our circumstances, right? Happiness is if your circumstances are good, you're happy. If they're not, you're not. Joy is rooted in the Lord and therefore cannot be uh, untethered. It doesn't matter what happens to your circumstances, your joy is going to be permanent. Usually the analysis ends there. So we're going to go far deeper because I have this problem when I open up my news feed and I look at the world around me and I go, okay, God, I know that my joy is constant, but my eyes are also open. Help me with that. So this is going to be a somewhat analytical message. We're going to kind of get deep into uh, the theological understanding of joy. And I need to say this from the outset. I recognize that a lot of you have the gift of faith. A lot of you don't need an analytical analysis of joy because God has gifted you with great faith. And I praise God for that. You see in the Gospels, Jesus having such warm compassion for those who just immediately have faith as they see him. But we also see that there's people like Thomas. Thomas was an apostle. They, they affectionately have, been, have called him Thomas the Doubter. And even with Thomas, you see Jesus so tenderly approaching Thomas to say, okay, I understand you. I formed you. I created you the way you are, Thomas. So I'm going to explain it to you. So this message today is really for the Thomases, though if you are the type of person that has the gift of faith, my prayer is that God will reveal himself to you, strengthening your faith all the more through this message. So that's our topic. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to camp out for the entire message. And as we go there, uh, here's the big idea of the message. The big idea is somewhat of a mouthful, but we're going to take every single section of this and think about it. It is this. Our joy in a troubled culture is rooted in God's providence as we engage with the culture to spread the gospel to his glory. So let's talk about that just briefly. 
So our joy is rooted in what? God's providence. We're going to talk quite a bit about providence and why God's providence is so critical to our understanding of joy. But then it's not just that. It's as we engage with the culture. So you're going to see this contrast of God's providence and then our responsibility to move within that. But for what end? The end is to spread the gospel to his glory. So that's where we're going. Um, we're going to set, I'm going to set two foundational building blocks. I'm not going to spend much time on these building blocks. Uh, but we can't get to our understanding of joy if we don't first understand these two building blocks because it builds right on top, as it would indicate by the words. So here's a, the first building block, and then we're going to go to our text. It's this. Joy in a troubled culture is found in recognizing God's providence. So turn with me, uh, follow along as I read verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay. We see in these verses God's power, his sovereignty, his providence. But let's, let's define this. Providence is this. Providence is sovereignty plus purposeful action. And we need to look at both sides of this equation. Okay, sovereignty simply means that God is in control. God's in control. You hear Christians say that a lot, and it's right. God can direct the outcome of an event. More specifically, he has the power he has the right, and he has the ability to direct the outcome of an event. Okay, that's what sovereignty is. As you read the Bible, you see God's sovereignty from the beginning to the end and everywhere in between. One of the, the maybe the most um, easy to see examples is the study that we've been doing that we're right kind of towards the end of in Exodus. You see God's sovereignty really on display as he's moving his people out of Egypt. As he's, as he's trying to, to reveal himself to Pharaoh as God, and yet Pharaoh continues to push against him. But God's sovereignty means he's going to have his way. And of course, we see God ultimately having his way, parting the Red Sea, providing the food as they exit out of, out of Egypt, right? That's God's sovereignty, and that continues on throughout the whole Bible. But if we're going to understand joy properly, we can't stop there. Yes, God is sovereign, but he's not just that. God is also providential. Providential means he directs his sovereignty with purposeful action. So let's look back at our text. We see that in, in this latter part of verse 3, he says, he has caused us to be born. That's his sovereignty. sovereignty. He has caused us to be born. He is in control of that. But then it says to. When you see this word too, it means he is directing. He is directing us to an outcome, which is our inheritance, which is in heaven. He has a direct plan for us. It is wise. It is good. Now, I read a book, probably, well, one of the most influential books outside of the Bible that I've ever read is a book called Providence. It's written by John Piper. It's one of his more recent works. It's a big, thick book on this topic. 
here's what he says. At the outset of this book, he, Piper says this. He says, the reason providence, this book, is about the providence of God rather than the sovereignty of God is that the term sovereignty does not contain the idea of purposeful action. The term providence does. Sovereignty focuses on God's, this is what we talked about, God's right and power to do all that he will, but in itself does not express any design or goal. Then he continues. He says, of course, God's sovereignty is purposeful. It does have design. It does pursue a goal. But we know this not simply because God is sovereign, but because he is wise. And because the Bible portrays him as having purpose in all that he does. And then Piper references Isaiah 46.10 that says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So we see that God doesn't just have the power, but he also has the purpose. That is going to be critical if we're going to understand joy within all the chaos that we have going on. So that's the first building block. Here's the second. This one will go a little bit faster. Joy in a troubled culture is found in recognizing the paradox of free will. So follow along as I read verses 6 and 7, and then we're going to touch on this quickly. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to really camp out on this, this point about the revelation of Jesus. So park that on the shelf for a moment. That's going to be our critical point. What we need to recognize and this is just going to be a truth we're just going to lay down and then come back to, is that we have free will to act. So we've got this, this interesting paradox as we look at the text where God is sovereign, he is in control, he is directing us to the ultimate end, which is heaven with him for eternity, but we also have this ability to move within his sovereignty, within his providence. As we understand that, it's going to enlighten, I think it did for me, why our joy is deeply rooted in this. Um, but it's interesting just to understand the paradox as we then try and bring this together. Um, here's a quote that I saw by, by Charles Spurgeon on the paradox of free will. He said, I believe that the path of a single grain of dust in the March wind is ordained and settled by a decree which cannot be violated. In other words, every single speck of dust was preordained by God. Every detail. That every word and every thought of man, every flittering of a sparrow's wing, every flight of a fly, that everything, in fact, is foreknown and foreordained. Here comes the paradox. But, he says, I do equally believe in the free agency of man, that man acts as he wills, especially in moral operations. I believe that man is accountable as if there were no destiny whatever. Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me, since I have given up my mind to believing in them both. So this is where we're going to try and connect these dots. Okay? We get to act in here. Because what I think about when I hear these, kind of these two truths is, okay, God, you are providential. I get that. You are sovereign because you are providential because you are sovereign and because you are good. So why allow the original sin. Why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin in the first place? He's providential. He's sovereign. Why? 
And then why is he allowing it to continue? Why is he allowing culture to continue to, to do what culture is doing in this chaotic way? Because though we can commit our minds to that, I do believe that God has given us the answer. And so that's, that's what is going to now bring us to the crux of our message. So here's the third Here's, here's the third point that we're going to learn, and this is where we're going to camp out for most of our time. Okay, joy in a troubled culture is found in recognizing the ultimate end, we're going to talk about this, is his glory and our joy worked out through salvation. So let's read verse 8 and 9, and then we're going to camp out here, and hopefully the, the picture starts to become clear. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, we got some work to do. Uh, the following, I'm gonna, about to take you through an analysis. Now, I'm sure you all remember the game of connect the dots when you were kids. You have a scatter point of black dots on a white piece of paper, and you take your pencil and connect them, and all of a sudden what seemed to be haphazard now become take shape, right? That's what we're going to do. Um, here's the first dot. God is complete. God is sufficient. He is lacking in nothing. And he was that way before he created the universe. God is fully happy, fully satisfied, fully content. God lacks in nothing. Next. When God created us, because of point one we can conclude that he did not create us in order to fulfill a void in him, right? If you think of human parents, sometimes we, and we have this call on our lives, we want to have kids in order to fulfill ourselves. Not everybody's called that way, but a lot of us are. God is not that way. He did not create us to fulfill him. This is like the fallacy. A lot of sports people might say, you know, go out there and give 110%. Now, I understand the spirit of that, right? The spirit is push until you can't push anymore and then push harder. But that's a logical fallacy. You can't give 110%. There is nothing more than 100%. You can't do that. Likewise, God was 100% complete before he created the world, which means we did not make him 110% complete because that's impossible. And he was not 90% complete and the creation of all of us made him 100% complete. That also is impossible. He was 100% complete before he created us and he was continued to be 100% complete afterwards. Therefore, and here's gonna be the third dot, we know that there has to be an inherent good that yields from creation, okay? God does not do anything void of a purpose. He does not do anything void of a reason, and then we know that that reason is good. We studied that in the providence part, the first building block. So we can conclude that the net yield, the net good, the benefit that derives from creation must flow one direction and one direction alone, and that is from God to us. The yield from creation cannot flow from us to God. Doesn't make sense. In much simpler words, God created the universe because he loves us. He wanted to benefit us. He wanted the, the benefit, the joy of creation to flow to us. Okay, we're not done yet. 
We also know from scripture that God deems his attributes worthy to be seen. That's what revelation is all about. The word revelation, when you, hears it in the, when, you, when you hear it in the church or in your Bible, it means God revealing himself. All of scripture is about the revelation of God. So we know that that is good and it is right. Why? Because his attributes are most glorious, most beautiful, most lovely. Our joy stems from our eyes being open to the revelation of God. Okay. Here's the last point. Here comes the crux. This is, this is the crescendo of all of mankind. And this is what makes sense of the second building block. If we did not have free will, the revelation of God would be meaningless to us. If we could not understand the view of life without God in a sinful fallen world, the revelation of God then does not make an impact on our lives. Think of it this way. An animal cannot experience joy. An animal can experience happiness. I know this. I have a dog. I've given my dog bacon. It can experience happiness. I see my kids laughing back there. My dog cannot experience joy because my dog cannot have the capacity and understanding to understand the revelation of God. That's where our joy comes from. That's what makes us as human beings different. Finally, the greatest attribute of God is his grace. His grace is what forgives our sins. The greatest revelation of the greatest attribute in all mankind is Jesus on the cross. All of mankind, the entire creation, was pointing to the cross because it is in the cross that God has fully revealed And most importantly, his attributes are fully revealed. The glory of his grace, which was hanging there on the cross for us. J.I. Packer wrote this really wonderful book. Another one of my kind of top three. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in that, he tries to reconcile this, this idea of why did God call us into evangelism if we know that God is fully in control of salvation? It's called predestination. God has predestined us to be saved. So why even call us into into evangelism? And J.I. Packer kind of lands right here on this point that the point of evangelism is not for God's benefit. God doesn't need it. We already discussed that. It's for ours because as he is revealed and spread out throughout all the nations, we experience joy because more people understand the revelation of God. So that's the key. The reason why our joy is rooted not in an emotion, because we see this even in our text, we will go through trials. The reason our joy is rooted in the goodness of God is because we get to experience the revelation of God in a fallen fallen world that could not happen but for the fallen world, as then he opens our eyes to him more and more and more. That's the point. So let's go back, now that we have lenses to see this, Let's go back to our text one more time, and we're going to read back through this, and I want you to think about the revelation. Watch the connection in our text between the revelation of Christ and our joy or rejoicing. You're going to see this perfect connection in the text. So let's go back and let's look at, let's look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, there's the joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
So he's saying, notwithstanding that, you rejoice so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the revelation of God, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, here it is, to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is revealed, why? For our joy. You see that? Look at the, the next verse, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what? Rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. We can't even express the joy filled with glory at what? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's why we're here. Okay. Now, I recognize that was, that was analytical. I also recognize, I think, that our minds need to inform our hearts, which then changes our actions. So we got to land the plane here, and we gotta, need to actually talk about some practical application. Um, here's some practical application. The first one is this. As we engage in the culture, and I, I should say that in the initial iteration of this message, I focused far more on the culture and far less on the joy. Um, it, it was occurring to me to talk about some of the hot topics in our culture right now. And um, interestingly, and, and I think rightfully so, through the probing of the Holy Spirit and some discerning wisdom by my wife, I decided to change and talk much more about joy because joy is permanent. But we're going to see here that we still need to step into the culture. So verse 13 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Let's stop there. One of the really interesting realities of God's providence is he set you here right now in this time in human history. Not some other time and not some other place. He set you here, the United States of America, in a democratic society, at this time in human history. Was that a fluke? No. He preordained every dust that is blowing in the March wind. So did he preordain you to be here now? Yes. We live in a democratic society. What does that mean? That means we have not only the, the, the ability and the right, but the privilege to engage in the democratic process. That is not a violation of Romans 13 to have an opinion, to get engaged, to be involved. In fact, quite the opposite. That is our responsibility we ought never wrap ourselves in Christian bubble wrap and say somebody else is going to deal with it. We need to engage and prepare ourselves for action. Now, just a little vulnerability here. I struggle with this. I do. And what's interesting is I'm a lawyer. What's more, I'm a tax lawyer, and I'm the policy expert in my firm. That's what I do. I read legislation and try and interpret it to other people. I know the issues, I know the policy, tax drives policy, policy drives tax, I know these issues, I don't like to engage, <laughs> I don't, I'm a people pleaser, I want to be friendly, I just want to be the guy that explains the law, um, I don't engage well. So I can stand up here on this stage and preach at you guys, engage in the culture, I'm preaching to myself, I need to engage more, I know it, I know the law. Why am I not engaged? I don't want to ruffle somebody's feathers. It's convicting to me. All right, here's the second one. Be sober-minded. Look at the second part of verse 13. I'm going to start at the beginning. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, there's a revelation again, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sober-minded means to be clear of thought. It doesn't just mean to not be intoxicated. It does mean that, but it doesn't just mean that. It means to be thinking clearly. There's, there, there's other terminology in the Bible that refers to don't drink too much, and that is drunkard. You'll hear that word in the, in the Bible, don't, don't be a drunkard. That means don't drink too much. Certainly this covers that, but it also means, most importantly, be clear of mind. Think. Read. Understand the issues. What is clouding your mind that might suggest that you are not sober-minded? Are you listening to podcasts too much? There's nothing wrong with podcasts. I love podcasts. But is it clouding your mind? Are you too consumed with Twitter? With I know Elon Musk is trying to limit the number of views, but that's still an awful lot of views. People can spend a lot of time on there. Is it clouding your mind? Are you not spending enough time in God's word to be thinking about the gospel clearly enough? Jonathan Edwards, um, and actually that analysis I went through earlier, uh, I got a lot from a book by Jonathan Edwards, which influenced John Piper, so I've read them both. Uh, Jonathan Edwards goes through this analysis of what he calls ultimate ends and subordinated ends. Ultimate end, he says, is the most important reason why you do something Subordinated ends is everything that comes underneath. He gives this example. I think this is helpful. He says, assume there is a man that has a health condition. And the man learns that there is a doctor in a distant town that has a medication that can cure his ailment. So the man sells his possessions, buys a horse, gets on the horse, travels a long distance, goes to see the doctor, buys the medication, takes the medication, cures his ailment. Jonathan Edwards says, the ultimate end is curing the health condition. Everything that came up to that point might be important, but those are called subordinated ends. If the man sold all of his possessions, acquired the horse, loved the horse, spent the rest of the horse's life together, that's good and wonderful. We all love horses, but that's a subordinated end. Likewise, if he sold his possessions, acquired the horse, went on the journey, saw the doctor, acquired the medication, and took that medication and put it up on his shelf as a trophy of everything that he had done, it becomes futile. It doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical. Why? Because you're taking a subordinated end and putting it up over the ultimate end. It doesn't make sense. So as we engage in the culture, we always need to remember, what is the ultimate end of God? His glory, our joy in eternity. Anytime we take a subordinated end and put it up here is nonsensical. So as we engage in the culture and we think, what is the most important issue in my life? Legislation? Winning the culture, if you will? Those are all important. Is it abortion? Is it religious liberties? All critical stuff. But if we take that and make it the ultimate end, it's like the man taking the medication, putting it up on his shelf. The ultimate end is God's glory through the revelation of Jesus on the cross. That's the gospel. That is why we exist. All the subordinated ends are still critical. That's most of what our life is, our subordinated ends. They matter. They matter. God made us that way to matter. Don't inverse it. 
Next, be holy. Let's look at verses uh, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There are, there are some embarrassing examples of Christians online. They're not necessarily substantively wrong. Sometimes they are, but not always. But if we remember that our ultimate end is the glory of God by revealing his attributes, and he can reflect his attributes through us, if our witness in any arena is that that does not reflect Christ, what are we doing, right? You know, one, one person that I think has a wonderful example of this is Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller engages in the culture with fearlessness, with resolve, with boldness, with a gift given to him by God. I don't agree with Albert Moeller on every issue. We diverge in some ways. I agree with him on most. That's not the issue. Albert Moeller acts like a Christian. He is a holy person, a great reflection of Christ in the way that he engages. And that doesn't mean he, he is fearful of the truth. Those two things can be held together. Be holy. Now, here are some ways for me, I went to the Beatitudes. When I think about, okay, what does it mean to be holy? Just read through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. You can go to the next one. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what it means to be holy. Are we peacemakers? Now, I recognize the challenge here. The challenge is those who are naturally inclined, who have a propensity for peacemaking, that's me, don't like to step into the culture <laughs> for the reasons that I had admitted earlier. Look at this. Blessed are those who revile you and persecute you. Generally, these are going to be at odds based on the propensity and the way that God formed us. So we just need to recognize which one calls us. I know some people that are fearless, fearless when they get reviled. Bring it on. I stand for the truth. And then there's people like me that are like, I know what the truth is, but I'm going to be a peacemaker. I think the peacemakers can, be lear can learn from this group, and this group can learn from the peacemakers. And I think that's all part of our process of being sanctified into the image of Christ. We're never going to do it perfectly, but we're going to do it progressively through our lives. Think about that term, sanctification. If you don't know it, sanctification means to be conformed into the image of God. What is the ultimate end of God? The revelation of his grace his glory, and his attributes. So as we become more like God, we are reflecting his attributes. That's what sanctification means. This should convict every person in this room. Some up here, some down here. That's the process. That's the point. All right, next one. Fear God, for he is providential. Let's look at verses 17 through 20. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, here it is, with fear 
throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. Okay. We now discuss, now if we can be kind of intellectually honest about this, we discuss that God is providential. He has a plan, and his plan is for our joy through the revelation of his glory. He's also sovereign. Don't forget that. That means he is in control, and we cannot thwart his plans. We cannot get in the way of his plans, and we should be fearful if we are in the, in the middle of that, in, the, in, in, adverse, in adversity to God's plans. It's like when you see the clips of a bicycle colliding with a freight train. It's not going to go well for the bicyclist, right? God's plan is not going to be moved. It's not. He's providential. He's in control. He is going to carry out his plan. That's where the fear comes in. The fear comes in being in the way of that. And we need to remember that. Do we fear the culture or do we fear God? Because God, God's plan is going to win. It is going to win. That's what a reverential fear of God's providence is. If we are behind that, then we are moving in the same direction as God, and that's where we want to be. Fear God, for his plans are going to make their way. Finally, glorify God. Verse 21, and then we'll wrap up here. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to praise him. We are going to glorify his attributes through song. As I invite the worship team back up to do precisely that. I just want to invite you. If maybe this message tugged at you a little bit. Maybe God is working in your heart to reveal himself to you. Don't close your eyes to it. Joy is rooted in our seeing of God's attributes, his revelation. Our joy comes from his glory. If he's calling on you right now in this moment, I just encourage you, open your eyes to him. There is joy rooted in his grace on the other side of that. So with that, let's pray, and we'll give glory to God through our praise. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this privilege. Lord, thank you for creating us so that way we might experience joy. Father, I'm in awe, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you love us, and that you want joy for us. So, Lord, receive our praise because you are worthy of it. Receive our praise as we, as we sing to you now. Uh, Father, we love you. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.